is at 6am on 3CR Community Radio, 855am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's a people's voice committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movements. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Go again. Oh, yeah, sorry. Good morning, everyone. You're listening to Green Left um, Weekly Radio. Um, in the studio, we have the full team today. Yeah. Because of a scheduling issue, and I'm going to blame Zane. <laughs> oh, that's... Uh, I don't know how that works. But... Yeah, my bad. Sorry about that. <laughs> wow, that worked. Demolishing, uh, demolishing comrades' sleep-ins. Yes. Yeah, no. What's going on? Ah, uh, packed lineup. Yep. yep, so we have, um, well just before, um, I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. Um, I'd like to pay our respect um, to Elders past and present and that this always was, um, always will be Aboriginal land. Now I think this um, week has been marked by quite a, um, a lot of um, political developments. In fact, we're still going through a kind of period of global revolt around um, the global south from people arising up in Chile, um, Lebanon, those protests are still continuing. Um, but actually, I think only just last week, there was a general strike in Colombia. And in fact, we're going to be speaking to um, a guest speaker to that effect to be talking about the political movement that's happening there. Um, and then at uh, later on, we're going to be hearing from... Um, an activist is gonna, um, from Iran is gonna, uh, Iranian activist in Australia is gonna be coined in to talk about the revolt that's happening in Iran right now. So there, that's quite, um, big. But I guess going into, um, Australian politics, um, I guess in terms of what's been happening there, um, yesterday we saw the defeat of the Ensuring Integrity Bill. And just to give a bit of background for the Ensuring Integrity Bill, this bill would essentially allow um, give um, the federal government powers to essentially deregister unions or step down union officials. Um, like, say, for example, um, there was a union secretary who, um, who did something that the government doesn't like and then he became... Pu- like they going become, on strike, for example. Yeah, they became um, they became <laughs> yeah. like public enemy number one. Um, this ensuring integrity bill would have allowed um, um, the um, federal liberal government to essentially just step down them um, for no for probably arbitrary kind of reasons. Um, when actually union secretaries uh, should be recalled by the members, um, they're also picked by the members, etc. Um, yeah, you. Zane, do you have any? What other things could you say about the Insurance Integrity Bill? Well, I'm a member of the CFMEU Construction Division. 
Um, I think the current leadership of our union, John Setka, is problematic. There's other people in the union whose views I respect who stand by John Setka. I just think that uh, the union should have enough depth that we have someone else um, as a as a leader apart from John, but um, that's a discussion for the membership to have. And if um, if the feminist politics of the CFMEU are perhaps lacking, then that's an issue for the broader union movement to solve. That's an issue for other unions to basically criticise the CFMEU, and that's a discussion and that's a dynamic that needs to play out within the workers' movement and within the union movement. It's not up to liberal politicians to um, sack union leaders on um, spurious grounds. And like we've seen with anti-terror legislation being used against ABC journalists, like we've seen with pepper spray, which was only ever meant to be a non-lethal alternative to using a gun being used on protesters, you can be you can guarantee that the ensuring integrity of bill this won't won't just be oh, oh it's it's a it's a special thing that if there's really naughty union leaders we'll use it to get rid of them yeah. no this will be a blanket piece of legislation that will be used to get rid of any uh, union leaders that the government of the day does not like so absolutely it's not um, th- the whole thing is. When you look at unions, unions are worker power. This is where, you, where this is where workers get their power. Uh, so this is literally an attack on the ability for workers to unite, to have an organisation that represents them, and to not have interference from the government. Um, and it, it reeks of hypocrisy. Mm. I mean, you can file, misfile paperwork, uh, get there some kind of demerit point system that they were talking about, and then, uh, you know, have this, um, person removed. Yet the banks can, uh, you know, have illegal, 23 illegal, uh, 23 million illegal transactions mm. and get a slap on the hand. Mm. It is an absolute hypo- hypocritical, uh, move, and it is absolutely designed to uh, remove the power of unions and remove the power of unions to deal with themselves. Yeah. Mm. No, I'm really glad it got um, it got it didn't get passed. And there's been some desperate lobbying of politicians by the ACTU over the last couple of days, including, you know, ring up Jackie Lambie, ring up Pauline Hanson, tell them that you don't want this bill passed. Uh, I guess that that lobbying has had an effect. And it's been voted down, but now you get the the sort of um, unsightly and unfortunate um, scenario where you get. I'm on this Unions Australia discussion page, and there's people on there going, "Oh, thank you so much, Pauline Hanson. Thank you." <laughs> are we so living good. in an alternative universe? I think we are. <laughs> well, but that, yeah, well, because the the politics of Pauline Hanson, Malcolm Roberts, or and Jackie Lambie, who all voted against um, the bill, 
Um, they have, I mean, I think Jackie Lambie's record is a bit slightly better than Pauline Hanson and Malcolm Roberts, but, um, Pauline Hanson and Malcolm Roberts has consistently voted, um, for all sorts of anti-trade union le- um, legislation. Mm. Um, they've also attacked welfare recipients, um, which actually does impact on the workers' movement. Um, they're also completely, you know, they stir up racism and division, which is absolutely not good for uh, a union movement and I think we like to imagine a world where you know the fact that this was one of the biggest attacks on one of the biggest attacks on the union movement since work choices mm-hmm. and there wasn't a single mass rally called by the ACTU the, the mm. biggest yeah. the, the, the main thing that the ACTU was pushing was that we should just you know lobby. beg lobby or beg the far right <laughs> to essentially not um not kill us, basically. Mm. Um, so I think, it's and that's that's in a context where union rallies are viewed as a electoral vehicle for the Labor Party. So unless you're mm. in the six, twelve, eighteen months leading up to a federal election, why would you have a rally? Why bother rally? Yeah, that's why bother rallying? That's all they're for. They're just for exactly. elections. Hmm. So this is a yeah, that's a big problem. And it's a definitely part of a wider issue with Labor involvement in the unions. But I also want to point out um, as well that this the the bill was only just not passed. I think, it, what was it, 34 to 34 or something? It was yeah. actually even. So, I mean, it really would only involve one of those independents, you know, to change their mind or to, to continue what they were going to do before lobbying. Um, to actually have this passed. So it's really um, important to note that this this happened. It was very, very close and that we continue, we need to continue fighting. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So what's up next? I mean, apart from that, we need to, there was this change the rules campaign and there was this kind yeah. of vague notion of what rules actually are going to be changed and probably the one key rule that, really needs to be changed is the right to strike and that didn't really actually get explicitly spoken Mm. about during the change the rules campaign but apart from stopping ensuring integrity we need to bring back the right to strike this is yes this is a a very important thing we need the right to strike for workers to be able to push a a just transition and and win re-election on climate change we've got stagnating wages people can't afford a house Mm. so not only is there a lack of defensive action to stop ensuring integrity, but there's also a lack of building the the base of a of an offensive campaign to win better, um, yeah, industrial yeah. sort of rights for yeah. workers. But and also, the, I think um, when you look going back to this um, ca- um, the ACTU campaign around the ensuring integrity bill, you know, I saw a lot of um, advertisements. Um, Big A zero pro, um, I think they A zero, yeah, A zero posters all around Melbourne, um, basically calling on people to lobby, um, these politicians, um, about, um, voting against the Ensuring Integrity Bill. And I think, you know, there needs to be a bigger discussion about 
how people, um, how our trade union funds are, are being used um, as a trade unionist, as a member of a trade union myself. Because imagine if these trade unions, if they're spending all this money on big A0 posters for essentially a lobbying campaign, why isn't that resources being used to go on big um, member drives to, you know, actually develop um, the the industrial weight of these unions through mm. you know big recruitment campaigns. Um, well, just on those posters, I think those were put out by the CFMEU, mm. and one of the criticisms the CFMEU has made <coughs> is that the ACTU weren't even um, they were they were barely even having a lobbying campaign. They were barely even having much in the way of posters or publicity. Yeah, mm. which is very worrying. I mean, this is the peak body for unions. Yeah. So the CFMEU, as the main target of this legislation, or one of the main targets, um, they kind of started putting up those posters around town. Um, but yeah, there's sort of broader questions about whether that's the most effective use of union resources. Hmm. Like you could probably, you know, recruit more, hire more union organisers to build in the build more, recruit more members, build industrial weight of of workplaces, etc. There's all these kind of things. I mean, not that I'm completely against, you know, posters or, or for a have a Yeah, have a rally. Like, those posters could have been advertising a rally. The CFMEU and a couple of other unions could have said, oh, well, if the ACTU aren't building a rally, we're just going to go it alone. We'll do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, those we've been seeing those posters for a month at least, longer, probably mm-hmm. six weeks, two months. That's That would have been a, a pretty hefty advertising campaign for a rally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, we'll just go play a quick announcement, um, and then we'll move on to doing. I'm talking about a news, another news story. Three CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Always bringing you the latest union news. They're coming after us at the moment. They want to get rid of penalty rates, the big push from businesses. They want to get rid of all the things that you and I have fought for. So there's tens of thousands of jobs gone, contracted out to sham contracting arrangements. On 8.55am and on the web, 3cr.org.au. Alrighty, welcome back. You are listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR, and it's a quarter past seven. Yeah, so I guess one thing I'd like to talk about is um, to talk about the kind of sad um, passing away of Sam Watson. Um, for those who don't know, he was a very um, he was a prominent leader of the Aboriginal rights struggle on um, in Brisbane, um, and he died on November the 27th um, 
a like uh, age 67, and he was a prominent um, author. As I'm reading from the obituary from Green Left Weekly, he was a prominent author, playwright, and filmmaker, and he was also the Socialist Alliance um, is Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Affairs spokesperson for many years. And he was a leading um, Murray activist based in Brisbane. Um, Watson was a veteran of Indigenous struggles going back to the 1960s, um, a proud Wagubara and Biri Gobar man. He's a former, he was also a former academic um, at the University of Queensland and received honours for his 1990 novel The Kaditsha Sun and acclaim for his 1995 film um, Black Man Down. Um, and in... To give a bit of a history, I guess, for Sam Watson, he first became active at the age of 16, um, handing out how-to-vote cards for the Yes campaign in the 1967 referendum on constitutional um, recognition of Aboriginal people. Um, He was a founding member of the Brisbane chapter of the Australian Black Panthers. Um, He proudly belonged to the original Aboriginal Tent Embassy in, in Canberra from its establishment in 1972. Um, throughout the 1970s, um, Sam worked with elders to establish um, Aboriginal community organisations and peak bodies in health, housing, education, employment and legal aid. And he was also an important figure in the Brisbane Aboriginal Legal Service in the 1990s. And Sam was also, as Jim Mack writes here, who wrote the obituary here, he was also a long-time socialist. He always saw the necessity to unite the struggles of Indigenous people with the movements of working people and the oppressed. And he also ran for for a number of elections um, for, for Socialist Alliance at both um, a state and federal level running. Um, and I think... And I think he also um, spoke, I guess, speaking about the current status of the Aboriginal um, land rights struggle. Um, Sam Watson told Green Left Weekly back in January last year that Aboriginal people are deeply concerned about the role of multinational corporations which are seizing our land and water and destroying it. And he also talked about the, you know, I think, yeah. And I think he had, I guess, an, another thing about Sam in, in line with his kind of... Um, you know, socialist politics. He always had a vision of a future socialist society in which black and white communities would live together in harmony and cooperation and where full sovereignty of Indigenous people um, would be recognised. And I guess he was always... um, One of the uh, amazing things about Sam was he was always... uh, you know, pro- a prominent figure at pretty much any sort of um, demo um, when it came to um, any political issue, whether it's, you know, refugee rights, Aboriginal rights, um, Palestinian rights, um, trade union, um, workers' rights, etc. He was always kind of pre- ever-present at all those rallies, and, you know, a really staunch figure who um, will be missed. And I guess my kind of early earliest memory of Sam, because I've met him a number of times over the years, um, is I first remember when... Uh, I first remember him speaking at a resistance conference back in 2013, back in Brisbane. Mm. I definitely um, lost a really good advocate for the movement. So, yeah, Bail, Sam. Yeah, I first met Sam when I was uh, first getting involved in socialist politics in the early, mid-2000s. And uh, Maurangi Damaji had been killed by... um, Constable Hurley on Palm Island and Sam Watson was one of the people to spearhead that campaign 
and it waxed and waned and the, the cops kind of got let off the hook and then there was a finding that the cops were culpable and then it was reversed and it sort of ebbed and flowed with different Labor and Conservative governments. But Sam was part of continuing to push that campaign and they did eventually win some compensation for some of the people on Palm Island um, in the aftermath of that. Um, and, yeah, Sam was just such a, yeah, a, a, a staunch activist and and just a wonderful person to hang out with too. So, yeah, it's really sad to, um, I don't know, sometimes you're an activist and you, you spend a lot of time with other activists and they become kind of like family members and yeah it's really mm. sad and our condolences to his family as well yeah 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 rest in power mm. yeah mm. um i have i'm just going to read out uh, an article um from jim mcelroy in the latest green left weekly um so uh, the Assange case just keeps going on and on and on, and he's languishing in prison. Uh, his health is deteriorating. Uh, you know, he's slowly dying. You know, according to his words. Um, and and Jim has written an article um, about the whole Assange situation. So um, Jennifer Robinson, who's a lawyer for imprisoned uh, WikiLeaks founder Julia Assange, um, Julian Assange, sorry, believes the United States application to extradite him from a British prison uh, is a very serious threat to three free speech and journalism in the US and all over the world. Uh, she says this is the first time in US history that the Espionage Act, which is the act um, that's being used to extradite him, has been used to charge a publisher, let alone to then see the extradition of a foreign publisher to the United States, she said. Uh, we've had Human Rights Watch uh, the American Civil Liberties Union, all kinds of free speech groups coming forward to say this is basically criminalising journalism. Uh, Robinson comments, uh, Robinson's comments were made during a public conversation with journalist Quentin Dempster, organised by the journalist group uh, Penn International at the University of Technology in Sydney on November the 15th. Uh, Penn International says the precedent being set threatens a free media worldwide, Robinson said. Julian is facing a total of 175 years in jail on charges related to WikiLeaks revelations that the US government covered up massive war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan. And we know this to be true now. I mean, what he said was true and what he leaked was true and it was for the benefit of the community. Uh, despite claims that Assange uh, failed to redact leaked U.S. security documents to protect individuals against possible harm, Robinson insists Assange and WikiLeaks carried out a thorough harm minimization reduction process. No one has ever been harmed as a result of the WikiLeaks revelation, she said, noting that one U.S. official stated the leaks were highly embarrassing, not harmful. Uh, Robinson told the audience that as part of Assange's legal defence, they would be relying on the fact that the British Extradition Treaty states, extradition shall not be granted for a political offence. Robinson criticised the widespread use of secret video surveillance against Assange and his lawyers to monitor meetings inside Ecuador's embassy in London, where Assange was exiled for seven years. Uh, we condemn the oppressive nature of the tactics of U.S. agencies against Julian and his legal team, she says. Uh, she expressed concern for Assange's deteriorating health due to harsh conditions uh, that he's faced in Belmarsh Prison, where he's effectively being held 20 hours a day in isolation whilst waiting for a, the full extradition case to commence in February. 
Um, and that's a really long time, and he's already been held um, a long time. Uh, Assange has also not been provided with a suitable computer and proper internet access to help prepare his defence case. Robinson slams Australia's refusal to make representations on Assange's behalf. The Australian government has failed to support Julian's rights as an Australian citizen, she said. Uh, there are now clear parallels between the recent federal police raids on the, AB- on the ABC and News Corp journalists and Julian Assange's case, uh, Robinson said. We hope that journalists <coughs> excuse me, in Australia are now more aware of the threat to press freedom than, that Julian's case represents. It's now really important for people to get involved uh, in camp- the campaign for- to free Julian. I know he was pleased at the protests which have occurred in Australia, including the scaling of Parliament House with a banner recently. Uh, we need a huge grassroots campaign to call for action to defend Julian. And Robinson recalled that when she first became involved with Assange's legal defence team in 2010, after the release of the Iraq war logs, he told her, the US government will chase us to the ends of the earth, but it is my obligation to do this. The persecution of Julian has continued to this day, and it's been a privilege for her, she says, to work um uh, with him and the other human rights lawyers on this case and she says we must continue to fight until we win so yeah really important case for press freedom across the world uh, and you know we've seen here as she mentioned uh, with the raids on the ABC and the News Corp journalists j- you know journalists are not free uh, to say what they think even if it is in the interest of the community to uh, divulge information uh, from the Australian government that is not that is in the interest of the community to divulge uh, where the Australian government has not acted in a proper way mm. yeah so what else folks what else have we got to talk about um, I wanted to um, talk about this um, article that's um, in Green Left Weekly. It's in the coming issue. Um, it's written by Derek Waugh, um, who is the international coordinator of the Greens Party and the well, former international coordinator of the Greens Party in the UK. Um, and this is about um, just a bit of a, a summary of the political situation um, that's coming into uh, the general election for the UK. Because, um, yeah, Britain is going to the polls um, on December 12th, and this is actually going to be going to be a big, I think, a more significant election than most. Um, I mean, because it is a country that is by far the, one of the biggest imperialist powers. Um, you have the whole European Union kind of crisis. Um, you have a, an increasingly far-right um, Tory party um, with two wings to it, which is, I think, the Liberal Democrats are the, the Remain wing of um, the Tories and the Brexit parties, the Brexit wing, um, and against against a Labour left, um, against um, Jeremy Corbyn, who I think um, there's a there's a political there's a I think there's a um, the fact is the capitalist class I think in some ways do not want Jeremy Corbyn elected any car cost although there are some sections of capitalism who are starting to concede to the idea of Corbyn potentially being elected mainly because I think that the alternate um, the capitalist system within Britain is in such crisis so currently I think. Polls do don't look that great for um, Jeremy Corbyn at the moment. The governing um, Conservatives are polling a steady 10% more and more than Labor, and in a winner takes all first past the post um, sis- voting system, they're potentially on target for a landslide victory. 
Um, Boris Johnson was, to give a bit of background, Boris Johnson was elected Conservative leader and thus Prime Minister in August, and he has had a rocky ride, taking his governing majority down to minus 43 after expelling MPs who would not support his hardline anti-European stance. However, his main policy to fix the Brexit um crisis and negotiate an exit from um, the European Union looks like a winning strategy. And since this referendum in 2016, um, the cold question around the European Union has dominated um, British politics. Whether for or against Brexit are wary with delay and uncertainty and look um, likely to be persuaded by a promise um, to finally leave and settle this debate so things can move on. And I guess looking at um, Derek Wall then writes about the whole media situation. I think the media, the British media are fully behind Boris. Um, their suggestions that, you know, the BBC um, have even made edited news footage to make Boris Johnson look better. And I guess the pro, as I sort of said, the pro-European Union Remain vote is split between several kind of political parties. Um, the right-wing Brexit party is actually, is refusing to contest Conservative seats, but the Brexit party is also cont- obviously contesting Labour seats because it's hoping it could split the vote away from Labour. Um, and... Um, a recent concert, um, poll by The Economist magazine puts the Conservatives well ahead of Labor, with 44% of the vote in the previous solidly Labor but pro-leave working-class constituency of Great Gimsey. And there's, of course, the issue of, you know, Britain's billionaires and hedge funds have been pouring money into the Conservative campaign. And I guess ever since he has been, ever since he was elected Labour leader, um, Jeremy Corbyn has been attacked relentlessly. You know, he's been labelled an anti-Semite and a friend of terrorists. Former Labour MP Ian Austin was wheeled out in the first week of the election to condemn Corbyn and insist that Labour voters should vote for the Conservatives. Um, pretty typical Blairite. <laughs> um, the election result could, um, could lead to a large um, majority for an increasingly right-wing Conservative Party, mainly because the more centrist <laughs> um, Tories have been actually ke- uh, continuing to be expelled, but were expelled by the Tories. So they've been replaced with by people who are even more right-wing. Um, and and I guess one of the things that um, Johnson is trying to pitch, he's trying to, you know, essentially pitch to, um, to Donald Trump. And in fact... Donald Trump is actually going to be visiting Britain shortly before the election, and in fact, there's probably likely going to be a big, massive protest against him, which I think would be, I think, a positive because I think it could only help the left and Corbyn. And um, the other issue is the issue of the NHS. And um, there's actually been some leaked documents recently, and this is not mentioned in the article, but there's been some leaked documents that actually Boris Johnson intends to sell off the, um, yeah. the NHS if he's able to implement his Brexit kind of strategy. Um, and he's also... Some of the promises that the Conservatives are making is, if elected, he has promised to um, introduce identity checks to make voting more difficult and is likely to redraw constituency boundaries to cement Conservative domination in future elections, essentially gerrymandering. Um, the Centre for Social Justice, um, a Conservative sympathetic think tank, has revealed plans to raise the pension age for 67 years to as much as 75. But then I think going into... 
the more optimistic kind of um, things. Uh, a conservative victory is possibly not as likely as we would these bleak polling figures suggest. There's a possibility that in 2019 there will be a repeat of the 2017 general election when former Conservative Prime Minister Theresa May called an election with the promise of exiting from the European Union, hoping to take working-class votes. She, you know, was also riding quite high on the polls. And May went into the election with an even with even stronger polls than Johnson, on average 20%. Um, she looked likely to win a huge majority on a right-wing program. Instead, on Election Day, the Conservatives only polled 42%. Um, 42%, closely followed by Corbyn's party on 40%. And to give a bit of context again, and we spoke a bit about the significance of that, that is actually one of the highest votes that Labor, I think, had had ever received in an election. Um, in fact, it, it, will, it sort of cemented Corbyn's leadership because... Um, there was all this doom and gloom that Corbyn's not electable, he can't pull on great votes yet, he managed to pull far greater votes than any of the, um, than the, the like the Blairites. <laughs> mm. And, um, and I think while Corbyn is unpopular with the British, um, media and some older writers, he still has a number of advantages from having a clear left wing, um, program for tackling climate change and ending austerity, um, which has, Given um, like the Labor Party in the UK, you know, a member probably has one of the largest, you know, more, a membership of more than half a million people, which gives it, I don't know, I think a formidable kind of mach- election machine that is able to mobilise voters on election day. Because I guess I think one of the limitations with Labor still is it's still it's still not necessary. It's not a socialist party necessarily, um, but the fact that it has five, I mean, five hundred thousand members. Is good, but it's in a sense that we're probably only really clear that those members are necessary mobilised for election day. Although I know that there's attempts um, from those who you know have newly joined the Labor Party, but their attempts to sort of democratise um, the Labor branches, use the branches as like a, a bigger base of political activity. But I'm not sure if that's exactly happening yet. But I think it's still quite promising. And I guess Corbyn is also very popular among young voters who have been registering to vote in record numbers, so young people not necessarily the ones that vote. And that's something that could throw those polls out because I think that (coughs) polls are adjusted to account for the fact that there can be kind of lowish participation or enrolment rates from young people. Mm. So... There was like 300,000 um, voting registers in like a single day or something like that. It was pretty Yeah, crazy. heaps yeah. of young people enrolling to vote. And if you look at, um, I think it's, there was a series of poll maps came out following the last election and they said if, um, if only young people like had voted if people aged, say, 18 to 30 mm. had been the only people voting, <laughs> Labor would have won every seat in Britain. Um, yeah. So, yeah, or when there's a heap of young people enrolling to vote, the vast bulk of them are all going to be Labor votes. Mm. I, I just... I am honestly utterly astounded that the Conservatives and Boris Johnson, that Etonian twat, Mm. has actually got a lead. I mean, I must live in some kind of lefty bubble. I just don't see how anyone could see them as a viable option when things like, you know, raising, raising, the selling off of the NHS, Mm. the raising of the retirement age. How does the average everyday person go, 
hey, that's the that's the party for me. I want to work till seventy five. I don't want to have my teeth and my health looked after by a you know a government body. I want these things. You know, I don't want any action on climate change. I just I I can't understand it. I really can't. And the whole class system in in um, Britain is absolutely rife. I mean, if you have a look at um, you know, there are so many lords in, in the, you know, the, um, parliament and it's just, it really is a rich old boys club. It's very elitist mm. and I can't understand why anyone would really think that that was a viable option for the average everyday working person. I mean, mm. Corbyn is such a, I mean, it's a no-brainer to me. You know, someone who actually wants to look after people, who has people's um, interests in mind, who does want to bring in um, a, a at least partly state-owned, um, you know, renewable energies uh, sector to to address climate change. It's yeah, all, quite it a all makes green sense. Green New Deal sort it, of policy. Absolutely, mm. it's that's called they call it the Green Industrial Revolution. I think it is. Mm. Yeah, um, it's really it, it all makes sense. And I just I don't know. I I despair. Mm. <laughs> and I think well, I guess. One of the things, um, just to talk about the, a bit of the third party, um, the centre-right Liberal Democrats, um, they're a strongly pro-European Union, but the party looks likely to support the Conservatives, as they always do. Um, there's absolute, there's no, because because pe- people have this sort of mistaken view that the Liberal Democrats are some kind of political alternative to the two major parties. Um, they're not. <laughs> they're just as I think I consider the Liberal Democrats to be as bad as the, as the Tories because they try to get they're basically essentially trying to give a more humane face to conservatism. And um, but you know there's there's there was some funny things with the the Liberal Democrats leader um, Joe Sonson. She was um, ridiculed after a poor performance in a televised debate. Her assertion is that she would press the button and launch a nuclear weapon if, ne- if necessary was also gone down badly. In fact, one of her biggest criticisms what? of Jeremy Corbyn is that he wants to get rid of nuclear weapons. Oh, <laughs> um, and and then she and then there was some bizarre social media hoax that she hated squirrels but yeah that's that's a weird kind of thing that's a dead cat (laughs) and i guess some other um this this potentially could help corbyn um but there's also another complex another another bit of um complexities so in the north of ireland where the conservatives are fringe party without mps and labor does not run candidates whoever um wins the present government lose the right-wing sectarian democratic unionists who feel portrayed by johnson after supporting his government won't help him in future parliament um a range of pro um remain parties including Sinn Féin and the greens have stood down candidates in key constituencies to maximize the votes of anti-sectarian and pro-european union candidates and i guess in scotland um the scottish national party has risen sharply in the poll and looks likely to take constituencies from both Labor and the Conservatives. While Labor has been traditionally been a pro-union party and has lost support to the SNP, it's possible that the NSNP would give Labor a minority government support after December 12, perhaps in return for a new referendum on Scottish independence. Um, and I think there's, I guess, some other... Um, that some other complexities as well is um, a number of the Greens um, although the Greens are not necessarily as big of a political force in Britain as they are in say Australia but they do hold one seat um, that they will likely win um, again Um, but I guess um, 
you know, I think there's there's still lots of potential. I think in the sense that Corbyn is fighting on a on a on a clear sort of social democratic um, sort of socialist sort of program, and I think the fact you know there's uh, there's um, the fact that 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 Corbyn has a yeah the fact that there's a clear left wing program I think put, put things in his favour. So I'm going to be it's going to be interesting to see whether he will win the election um, despite all these sort of factors against him. I think, I think the fact that he has lasted this long um, from 2015 to 2019 still indicates that there's still a lot of life in the Corbyn um, political project. Yeah. Word. Um, you know, th- this kind of thing, it really brings up the fact that, um, you know, mainstream media hate Corbyn and they hate a lot of left progressive uh, groups and spokespeople and it really uh, emphasises the need for independent media such as uh, 3CR and such as our sister newspaper um, Green Left Weekly. Uh, Now Green Left Weekly is actually having a a supporter drive at the moment so we're looking to get more support um, from you dear listeners and readers and uh, if you would like to support us you can support us for as little as $5 a month so you can support the digital copy and receive that in your email you can go to greenleft.org.au and just click on the supporter support us button um, in the uh, the top right hand corner uh, for ten dollars you can actually get ten dollars a month you can get the um, the digital edition and also a print copy as well um, my print copy I often um, leave in cafes and on the bus etc for other people to read uh, independent media is this so Greenleaf weekly is people driven just like it's 3CR and it's important to have people-driven media because currently our landscape, our media landscape, is dominated by corporate media and therefore basically only projects corporate interests. So people-based media is important to get the word out about issues that matter to people and frame issues in a way that matter to people and give them the information. So, yeah, please do consider supporting Green Left Weekly, greenleft.org.au. Click on the supporters button and either donate or support, and we'd appreciate it. Yeah. You are listening to Green Left Radio on the Friday morning breakfast show, broadcast live on 3CR Radio, 855 AM digital and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Green Left Radio is brought to you by the Green Left Weekly newspaper, providing a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment before profit. Subscribe to Green Left Weekly by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it's only $10 for the first seven issues. Accented women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu, that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accented women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the... How can people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are two, where there are armies there and terrorists there and such conflict every single day of their lives? Accent Women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. On Community Radio 3CR. Six years I've been Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. 
It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you to all of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things unfold. And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know. It's been going for a while now. Hopefully it goes, it keeps going, you know. Like, it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there as prisoners. We can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor because real power comes from here and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03-9419-8377. Welcome back. You're listening to Green Left Radio 855 on your AM dial. Uh, so this morning we have Lewis Chowks, a uh, member of United for Columbia Australia, which is a not-for-profit organisation for human rights and social justice in Colombia. Uh, so uh, if anyone's been looking at the news, there has been an uprising in Colombia, and we're here to talk to Lewis about that today. Welcome to the show, Lewis. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so um, my name is um, Jacob, and um, I guess what can you can tell us about um, the political situation that's currently unfolding in Colombia right now? And I'm pretty sure, if, if I'm correct, um, only just last week there was a big kind of massive kind of general strike. That's right. Uh, we went on strike on the 21st of November, and uh, the strike was initially about the intention of the government to introduce some reforms that will um, worsen the workers' conditions and affect their pensions, or superannuations, as we call them here. Um, but uh, it quickly turned into um, a lot of a few other social issues um, that we have been um, living for the past five or so decades, um, including the, um, the lack of will from the government to adhere to the peace agreement that was signed with the guerrilla uh, back in 2016. And um, within that, the fact that we have over 7 million people that have been internally displaced um, that have the right to return to their land now that the peace agreement has been signed. And um, as we have seen, the, these processes are not, are not advancing um, so there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of things that are it's a very complex issue. Um, we also have um, over 840 human rights defenders and, and social um, leaders and activists that have been targeted and murdered um, since May 2016. So we have quite a few a few things going on. Hmm. And so this is um, I mean. 
It seems to be a very common thread in a lot of uprisings across the world. It is, it's one thing that just sets people over, but it is an issue or issues that have been uh, churning over for a number of years. Can you give us a little bit of a, a history on, um, you know, what's been happening in Colombia and what led up to this and then maybe give us an idea of what is next for those uh, trying to um, progress the issues? So what we have seen in Colombia is that um, over the past five decades, uh, the armed conflict with the guerrilla uh, basically dominated the news. And um, this wasn't a specific um it was it was it was an, an a specific effort to uh, not to not to talk about the many social issues that we have of inequality in Colombia. So the fact that we have an armed conflict was um, basically everything that people talked about in the, in the news, and a lot of the social justice issues were not being talked about. So after the, the um, after the peace agreement was signed um, in November 2016. It was a lot more clear to us that we have very, um, very important issues of inequality in Colombia. Um, for example, we have um, the ten percent of, of population has four times the wealth of the bottom forty percent of people, um, and we only have like forty-four percent of our young people finishing high school. And even half of that, only half of that going to um, further education. So um, <clears throat> the list goes on. <laughs> we, um, and, and we have people that have awakened to these, to these uh, um, realities. And we are simply asking, everyone is asking for the government to do its job and to uh, negotiate uh, a better situation for all Colombians and not just the the elite and the people that are, have been in power for, for many years. Mm. And um, give it, can you let us know... Um, what what future plans do you have now? I know that you're here um, with United Columbia here in Australia, and you're you're located in Sydney. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, we're yes. in Sydney, and we are an organisation that have been um, facilitating spaces for dialogue and for learning, collective learning, within the Colombian community in Sydney, and we've also. Um, um, have connections with other Latin American um, organizations um, here in Sydney as well. Um, <clears throat> so I guess what we want from here onwards is to continue to visit, uh, visual, um, bring awareness to the fact that during this national strike there has been um, a lack of political will to listen to what the people are saying um, and that there's been a number of um, smear campaigns going around about the causes or the reasons why people are striking. And um, so I think our role here is really to just ensure that those fake news are not um, taking the attention away from, from what the people in Colombia is asking and better conditions for, for <clears throat> the working class and better conditions for um, for the people that are um, not <laughs> the, the poor people, I would say. Mm. And just speaking on um, conditions, 
Is there a set, a set of demands um, that the Colombian strikers have? Um, have they have they sort of um, elucidated what these demands are? Um, so initially, it was about the the possible reforms that the government was were trying to implement. So um, the initial demand was these reforms did not go through, and as we have seen, the government throughout the strike is is going ahead with some of the steps necessary for these reforms, which will ultimately deteriorate the conditions of the working class. So they're not listening to to what the people are saying. Um, So that's one of the demands. Um, On the other hand, there's a very strong voice that says that we want the peace agreement to be um, implemented and for the government to resume dialogue with the ALN, which is the, uh, another guerrilla group that is still active. Um, and there's also calls for um, for the government to res- uh, not to take away the funding that's going into public education as well. So there is um, there's, a, there's a number of requests, um, none of which are being listened to. Um, and I think it's just kind of the collective um, response over many, many years of bad policies that um, have um, deteriorated the, the conditions of the working class. Mm. Um, Luis, how, um, how do you think that politics in Colombia has been influenced by the pink tide in Latin America and particularly with um, the um, left-wing government next door in, in Venezuela? Um, which initially was probably a promising thing for um, working-class people in Colombia, but as time has gone on and there's this really crushing uh, sort of economic sanctions and embargoes on Venezuela, their economy is in big trouble. So how does this kind of influence... um, I I, I guess it must be contradictory because there's positives and also negatives... Uh, happening next door and, and elsewhere in Latin America? Um, yeah, I mean, the influence of Venezuela has been um, has been important, but I think more importantly, it's been the influence of what's happening in Chile, where they've been in process for over a month now, and they have achieved um, a constitutional reform. Um, what we saw in Chile was that, um, <clears throat> I guess, the promise of, of free markets leading to prosperity and that prosperity solving all problems, that promise has failed. And the accumulation of wealth in the top 2% of the population um, has made people realize that neoliberal policies are not for, um, do not benefit everyone in the country and, and really only benefit the top, uh, the top 2% of the people. So, I guess the the fact that Chile, which has been known to be a very peaceful, the uh, I guess the proof that neoliberalism is, is, is the key and that it works, um, that has influenced a lot of Colombia because we have kind of realized that we have a lot of the same inequality problems and that the government will not change if we only ask nicely. You know, we've been doing that for many years, and and there's no political will to to make any changes. What's happening with Venezuela is kind of scary as well for us because 
um, we see the the influence that the United States has on on our own politics and the fact that they are um, in in in, a, in, a, in the condition that they are it, it's largely because they've been blocked politically in many ways by the United States. So it also makes us question like if, if we were to have a left wing government. Will our situation be similar to the one of Venezuela? And 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 I think people are starting to realize that it's not about the the, the policies themselves, but it's whether we as a country decide that our resources are for ourselves and not to be extracted and and and, and taken out of the country by multinationals. Hmm. Um, so it is it, it is that slow process of educating the population in Colombia, which has been manipulated by the media a lot, mm. and that, um, as, you, as you mentioned, Venezuela, we are constantly being shown in the media how horrible the situation is in Venezuela and all of these scary tactics, scary tactics that they use, and they don't talk about the influence that the United States has on, on their situation. They just talk about um, a, a communist regime that, that is, that is um, doomed for failure. So it is, it is definitely a very um, <clears throat> important um, part, uh, history moment for us. Mm. Um, I have a, um, another question, I guess, um, because we've been talking about, I guess, the role of the left and the, um, those kind of political factors. Um, in terms of these current struggles um, that are currently kind of happening in Colombia, um, a big part of sort of left-wing struggles have always been um, the role of FARC, um, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia. And I guess wh- where do they kind of fit in terms of these these current current waves of protests that are currently happening? I mean, the, the FARC um, did start as, as uh, I guess, as a socialist kind of communist guerrilla. Um, but what we saw was that their um, intentions deviated somewhat um, throughout the process. And I guess they don't, towards the end, they didn't really represent the ideals that they, in, that in, they initiated with. So um, it is, it, it, it's a shame that what what was initially something to do with um, social justice and equality kind of quickly turned into something else. Um, so we, I guess, people that are not um, people in Colombia do not um, affiliate with what the FARC did over the five or so decades that they were. Um, uh, in power, that, that they were active. So yeah, it's not it, it, it's not one thing or the other. Like we're, we're not like pro government or pro far. We want simply just uh, policies that are not creating inequities and injustices. Mm. And um, just what is the uh, the Colombian government's response on the ground to the strike? So you know, has it has it has it been a sort of a very uh, harsh crackdown? What methods are they using to stop uh, people uh, rising up? Uh, what what sort of things are happening on the ground? Um, it's actually very shameful what is happening on the ground because, um, for once, there's a lack of 
will to um, enter negotiations with the um, with the parties that are. When I say parties, I mean the, the not political parties, but the people that are organizing themselves and in, in, in voicing out their concerns. It hasn't been um, a dialogue about how to resolve the national strike. There's also been um, there's also been like a lot of um, videos on the web where you can see the police force going around neighborhoods and breaking windows, like just creating sort of vandalism um, throughout um, neighborhoods that makes you wonder, like, how, how does the police force end up doing these things? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, they are basically creating terror for people to, for the conversation to get deviated. And there really needs to be some investigation um, about the reasons of these videos. Um, there's also been the um, non-conventional use of non-lethal weapons um, against um, uh, Pacific um, protests. So what we're seeing is that the special forces have been um, dispersing uh, groups of people that have been uh, protesting peacefully using tear gas, and um, during one of these um, occasions, um, a special force um, person um, shot a projectile at a, at a protester's head, which ended up killing him. Um, an 18-year-old student um, was killed by, by the special forces by the incorrect use of of one non-lethal weapon. So what I'm what I'm trying to explain here is that he was using a weapon that was only meant to be shot at the air, like in um at a long at a long range, and um in a way that is not it, it doesn't um harm people. And he, this this person was shot in the head at, at a 10, 10 meter di- um distance, and this person died. And 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 this is like uh, what the media is saying is like it. They, came, the government came out and say, "Oh well, this was an accident, and this happens all around the world all the time, and it's just such a um infuriating response from them because they are not being accountable of of their actions to a, a start negotiation and to be be accountable of what their special forces are doing yeah, and it seems to be um it seems to be a pattern around the world uh, with these uprisings, non-lethal weapons being used with lethal force or damaging right. force like rubber bullets to the eyes and, you know, uh, tear gas canisters fired directly at people. Um, right. Now, Lewis, we're coming up to the end of the interview. I'm just wondering, can you tell us what uh, United for Columbia and the community in general have planned in terms of solidarity here in Australia? So there in Sydney, or if you know anything that's happening here in Melbourne, uh, what do you plan and, and how can we as a community help assist uh, people in Colombia to, you know, to get what they need? Um, we've actually seen a few events happening already in Solidarity. So United for Colombia has organised um, a couple of events where people have come together in peace and send a message, uh, sending messages of solidarity with what's happening in Colombia and also using the international platform to, to voice out what what we really need to be talking about and not what the local media in Colombia wants people to talk about. Mm. So United for Colombia, um, 
will continue to create the space of dialogue. Um, in Melbourne, we, um, there's a group called Solidarity Melbourne. Um, yes, Solidarity Melbourne, and they've also been doing been very active in just creating those spaces for the international for the Colombian community in Australia to come together in what it is uh, a crucial moment for us and where we need to like be with each other. Mm. And we're just basically just wanting the government to act. And we will continue to send this very strong message that they need to be accountable for their actions and they need to come up with solutions for what the people are asking. We will definitely continue to. Thank you, Lewis. Thank you for coming on here and just letting us know the situation in Colombia. Uh, we stand in solidarity with you and with Colombians and all people who are rising up to, to get their basic freedoms. Thank you, and um, we will, hopefully we will speak to you at some other stage. Thank you, Lewis. Thanks so much. Cheers. Excellent. So um, that was Lewis Chalks, uh, who is a member for United Columbia Australia, uh, and he was speaking about uh, the general strike and uprising in Colombia. Okay. And so once again, you're listening to Green Left Radio, 8.55 on your AM dial. And it's 8.04 AM. Um, so it's time for the activist calendar. One second. Just going to play a quick announcement. Sorry, sorry. 3CR broadcasters present over 100 radio programs every week, including a diverse range of community language shows. Come to the 3CR community radio. Please subscribe now. radio Suscríbete ahora. Support the station that gives your community a voice. Subscribe to 3CR. Don't have a million dollars and still want to have a good education for your kid? Tune into the Dogs Program. We are the defenders of government schools. 12pm on Saturdays here on 3CR. 855 on the AM Dial podcast, streaming live on 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital. We defend government schools because they need it. Alright, you're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. It is 8.06am, so it's time for the activist calendar. So um, today is going to be is the Global Day of Action, um, called by Greta Thunberg. So there's a number of different actions being called, uh, but fortunately nothing, none of them conflict with each other. Um, so starting today at 12 o'clock at the State Library, there'll be the Rally Fridays for a Future um, Global Climate Strike, which is organised by Uni Students for Climate Justice. Then there'll be a solidarity sit-down. This is climate change. Our government's in action on the climate crisis. It's been continuing to catastrophic fires. People are hurting. Communities are being devastated. And summer hasn't even begun. And that's at 2.30pm at the Parliament Steps. And then at 4pm, XR is organising a climate emergency rally at Batman Park. 
And then on Saturday, November the 30th, um, there's a rally, community action and cancellations on the upfield line and they'll be happening at 11am at the Coburg Library, corner of Victoria and Louisa Street in Coburg. There'll be a uh, concert, um, Rocking for West Papua, 4pm at the Central Club Hotel, 293 Swan Street in um, Richmond. On Sunday, the 1st of December, there'll be West Papua and flag raising at 2pm at the Flagstaff Garden, 311 William Street, um, 309 West Welburn. And then at, I think, 5 o'clock, I think as far as I know, there is going to be a Latin American solidarity protest, putting together um, different um, Latin American communities in solidarity with the global revolts that are happening around Latin America, including Colombia, Bolivia, um, Chile, um, and that, yeah, they'll be happening at 5pm at the Federation Square. And then there'll be a Green Left discussion, how to make a revolution. Um, the gap between the rich and the poor grows more and more. The system is becoming increasingly disastrous um, for ordinary people, but people are rising up all over the world, from the school climate strikes to Chile to Lebanon. Come along to this discussion about how we can fight for fundamental social change, and they'll be happening at 6pm at the Resistance Centre, Level 5, 407 Swanson Street in the city. Um, there'll be a book launch, um, sticking it to the man, George, join Andrew Nitty and Ian McIntyre for the launch of their new book, 6.30pm, Old Bar, 74-76 Johnson Street, Fitzroy. On Thursday, December the 5th, um, there'll be a public forum, How Labour Built Neoliberalism. Um, Elizabeth Humphreys examines the role of the Labour Party and trade unions in constructing neoliberalism in Australia, and they'll be happening at 7pm at the New International Bookshop, Trades Hall 54 Victoria Street, um, Carlton South. And Sunday... Um, December the 7th to Sunday, December the 8th, there'll be a conference, Historical Materialism, happening at the Shreds Hall for 54 Victoria Street in Carlton. On Sunday, the 7th of December, there'll be a rally for permanent raises and family reunion. Um, at, they'll be happening at 2pm um, at the State Library, 328 Swanson Street in the city. Um, there'll be music, Rise Up West Papua ben- Benefit Gig, 2 to 10pm, Underground Car Park at 44 Harms, Worth Street in Collingwood. And then comedy, there'll be the Chasers War on Everything, um, happening at 6, 6.30pm at the Athens Theatre, 188 Collins Street in the city. And then on Sunday, December the 8th, there'll be an XR Action Not Drowning Rebellion. XR Port Phillip invites everyone from all walks of life to join us in for a march, sing and dance and swimming on land that is at 12 noon at the Katani Gardens um, Beaconsfield um, Parade St Kilda. And then on on uh, Sunday, December the 8th, there'll be a fundraiser gig. Um, demonstration is a human right. A fundraiser to assist the legal and medical expenses for those most egregiously affected by um, the police brutality at the IMARC blockade. And they'll be happening at 6pm at um, the Cafe Gummo, um, um, 711 High Street in Thornbury. And then um, on Saturday, December the 14th, um, there will be uh, a celebration party for the Save Footscray Park campaign at 7pm at the Night Heron at 228 Nicholson Street, Footscray. And then on Thursday, um, December the 19th, there will be a refugee fundraiser, BAM, a night of great tunes and cheap booze with stellar performances from amazing local artists in support of Asylum Seeker Resources Centre. And they'll be at level 186-88 Hopkins Street, Footscray. Right. Okay. Um, let's just play another quick announcement, shall we? Hello.
تعلم بمن تتصل اذا حدثت لك اصابة في العمل اضمنوا هيئة ويكسيد فيكتوريا سلامة العمال في جميع انحاء ولاية فيكتوريا عن طريق مساعدتكم في معرفة حقوقكم وواجباتكم المتعلقة بالاصابات في مكان العمل وقد اعدت هيئة ويكسيد فيكتوريا ثلاثة مشاهد متحركة وهناك صفحة حقائق متاحة عبر الانترنت وذلك لمساعدتكم في فهم ماهيتها والامور التي تستطيع القيام بها من اجلكم راجعوا الموقع www.worksafeinfo.com.au للحصول على معلومات بلغتكم Right. Good morning. You are listening to Green Left Weekly Radio, and on the line we have Damoon, um, who is a member of the Iranian community in Melbourne. Um, and um, Iran has been marked by another series of kind of mass protests, um, with a, I think a, a bit of a media blackout as well. So we have Damoon on the line um, to talk about kind of what's happening there. Good morning. Uh, thanks for having me on the show, Jacob. Good morning. Yeah. So, um, what can um, what can you tell us about the, the I guess the protests that are kind of happening right now in Iran? Yeah, sure. So, um, well, thanks again for having me on the show because uh, there's just been sort of a media blackout in the West reporting on Iran, uh, which has been really unfortunate. I think the protests currently in Iran have been sort of building up for a while. Um, a lot of sort of political analysts will say it's just because of the um, rise in fuel prices, which happened about a week ago when the Iranian state almost tripled the price of uh, fuel and reduced the subsidies. But in reality, we can see that Iran has faced uh, protests for the past 40 years of the existence of the Islamic Republic of Iran, and that these are just built-up tensions that come from living under an authoritarian uh, very sort of um, oppressive regime. And we're currently seeing the outburst of that uh, in Iran. And what, well, so, um, so you would sort of explain um, these sort of general protests as um, more a kind of revolt against the regime and not necessarily focused solely on kind of economic issues, although yeah. you think both kind of things are linked. Of course. So I would say that, I mean, economics plays a major factor um, because the people in Iran have been, and truthfully so, struggling under sanctions. And on top of that, there's a sort of saying in Iran that they say, no, Syria, no, Lebanon, um, bring the money back to Iran. And pretty much it's hinting at the fact that the Iranian state has been channeling money into these proxy forces throughout the Middle East and has been barely funding uh, services in Iran as well. But we can also say that it's been clear from the protests in 2009 and the workers' strikes we've had in Iran last year that this is more than just about the economy. This is about demanding a democratic government in Iran and that I would say the fuel prices are just sort of a trigger for these revolts. And is there kind of... does These protests, I guess, one of the things I remember reading, as I remember back in 2017 or going all the way back towards the end of 2017 to kind of early 2018, uh, mm. Iran was also kind of marked by quite big, massive protests. Are these sort of protests, the, this new kind of protest movement, I guess, that's arising right now, um, yeah. is it, are they kind of linked to these previous wave of protests that happened earlier yeah. last year? Yeah, so a uh, great question, actually. I would say so. Um, so looking sort of at the videos coming from the Iranian protests, I mean... 
if we look if we look at the last sort of major uh, national revolt in Iran, we can look at 2009 when Ahmadinejad was accused of rigging the election. And what was very peculiar about that was in the beginning the chants um, against the regime were very tame. They were just uh, dem- uh, demanding a more transparent process. And then maybe after like a week or two, it sort of escalated into chants saying like death to Khomeini and death to the Islamic Republic and so forth. We've also, like you said, we've had strikes in 2017 and 2018. At first, they seemed to be very tame, and then the messages started becoming more and more radical. What happened this time was pretty much from the first day, people just got straight into the radical chance. It's like they picked up from where they left off. It was quite amazing. Um, and it was so sort of, it was so out of nowhere. It was so profound that the Iranian government could barely respond. I mean, just in the first few days, they managed to burn almost all the national banks in Iran, in Kurdistan, and in the Kurdistan region in Iran. And all they could really do to retaliate was to cause a media blackout. So, yeah, it was sort of picking up from where the previous revolts came from. And um, what can you, I guess, can you tell us about um, the kind of different sections of the, um, the community um, within Iran in terms of ethnic groups that are kind of being mobilised? Because um, mm-hmm. I've been noticed that there has, um, I mean, you organised a solidarity protest recently, but I've also noticed there's been a number of different solidarity protests um, organised yeah. by different sections of um, the Iranian community. And, yeah, what can you yeah, tell right. us a bit about sort of that kind of political background? Right. So this is quite an interesting question. Um, look, Iran itself is a very sort of interesting example of how uh, different ethnic relations and different groups within a nation can be quite sort of peaceful together. So in Iran, you don't usually have the same issues you have with some of the Turks and the Kurds and the Arabs. Like, people are generally very... Um, with each other and are very based on ideas of solidarity. So when you had the strikes in Iran earlier this year, or even in last year, you had solidarity from, like, teachers in uh, Tehran, from Kurds in Iranian Kurdistan, from Arabs. And we've sort of seen the same thing right now as well within Iran. So in Iran, I mean, Iran's only, like, what, 50%, 60% Persian, the rest are Kurds, Arabs, Baluchis, Turkmen. I mean, you have so many different groups. And in these strikes, in these protests, we've seen them very unified. It's been such a great thing. Unfortunately, uh, there seems to be this thing with the Iranian diaspora that sort of come outside of Iran, and they become very disillusioned with uh, the idea of Iran being, you know, an Islamic republic. And then they start, I guess they start getting engaged in a case of historical amnesia, where they uh, go back to the past, and then they start, um, you know, romanticizing Reza Shah, I mean, who was a dictator, and then they start putting out this image of Iran as being sort of this um, non-Arab nation, and it's very different from the rest, and they, they try to be very westernized. And so these people are usually Shah supporters uh, in the West. And what we see in the West is that these identities, these occurs of the Shah supporters and stuff, they just become a lot more sort of toxic. They cling a lot more to these um, yeah, identities, and they really work less. So, I mean, it's been good. We've actually managed to host a lot of protests in Melbourne and Australia, that has brought a lot of these groups together, but it's also been very hard at times um, because the politics is always conflicting with each other and the identities are as well. But in Iran, this is a completely different story. It's the, the, the relationships between the different groups there are so beautiful. It's, it should be an example for different groups in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. 
And anyone else have any other questions? I'm just talking about the other presenters, <laughs> if they had any questions. Yeah, so um, I'm just wondering, um, so with Iran, we were talking to someone in Colombia. Um, with, with Iran, are there any particular demands that people are, uh, have they formulated and, and what, what are yeah. those demands? Yeah, right. So because the nature of these protests are so broad, they're sort of intersecting across so many different groups and nationalities, the demands can be quite broad. But what we are seeing is a very common message that the Islamic regime of Iran, the same uh, regime or government that hijacked the 1979 revolution has to go. Um, and it's just, it's been building up. You know, whether it's women in Tehran taking off their scarves um, to show that they should have freedom over their own bodies and how they present themselves, to Kurds and Arabs being heavily repressed or Baha'is in Iran, it all comes back to a common sort of, I guess, struggle against authoritarianism and power. Mm. Um, of course, there's also sort of different demands amongst different groups. So perhaps the Iranian Kurds who sort of had uh, briefly after the 1979 revolution had some control over Kurdish cities and aspirations to create an Iranian Kurdistan, they would also perhaps want that dream realized, materialized, or the Avazi people and the Arabs and Baghdadis would perhaps want more fair treatment and, I guess, um, more economic development in the region. But the general message seems to be the removal of this regime and replacing it with a democratic government. Mm. And, Damun, would you just be able to tell us a little bit more about the policy which kind of triggered this um, latest wave of protests, uh, in, in particular this... Uh, increase in fuel prices coupled with promises of some sort of payments to the poor, but people are like skeptical yep. as to whether that's actually going to even happen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is sort of a very typical tactic, um, I guess. And you're seeing this not just in Iran, but you're seeing this in sort of governments around the world that are, are, are facing the the anger of the masses, right? It's sort of a trigger happen, like maybe attacks on WhatsApp, like we saw in Lebanon and so forth, and the people come out and they show their anger at it, and the government tries to appease them through all these measures. So what we saw in Iran, a country that's already just broken economically, was the government trying to remove the fuel subsidies, uh, uh, also uh, limiting the amount of fuel people can get and taxi drivers, and raising it almost like like three times the amount. So that in of itself was sort of symbolic of just, not just of the economic conditions, but how disconnected the government was from the people. And of course, afterwards, they've tried to sort of uh, say all of these things to, because I guess Rouhani's uh, image is a very reformist, so he's saying all of these things, such as helping with the poor and so forth to win back the people. But in reality, when you're shooting at people, when the Amnesty International just three days ago reported that 143 people had been murdered in Iran, and a few days ago a 15-year-old girl was shot as well, then these discourses don't mean anything. What shows and what mm. is prevalent is the violent nature of the state. Mm. Yeah. So we're getting in a bit to the 
Unless you had another question. Oh no, no, that's okay. No, I, I just, I just wanted to thank you for coming on. Um, this has all been very enlightening to me. Yeah, no, I, all good. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, I guess going into a bit, um, sort of reaching the end of the kind of interview. Um, is there yeah, any sure. kind of final final comments you'd like to make? Um, are there any up, upcoming uh, um, solidarity protests coming or other activities? Um, so there's a solidarity event this Sunday. I'm actually not sure what time it is. Um, the biggest, uh, well, uh, I'll try to, I'll try to do my best to get the information out afterwards. But the biggest thing I really want to draw back home is that the world is currently facing revolt against neoliberalism, against capitalism, right? And we're seeing this not just in Iran. We're seeing this everywhere. We're seeing this in Chile, Hong Kong. We saw it in Ecuador, Iraq, Egypt. I mean, Iraq yesterday had one of its bloodiest days. 30 people were murdered for trying to get onto a bridge. And the Iranian government started sending its forces because its embassy got burned down to death, and rightly so. So people around the world right now are rising up against this condition of oppression, and we need to support them. And that is what I think is beautiful, is seeing people in Lebanon there holding these signs saying solidarity to the Iranian people, and people in Iraq doing this and stuff. And it shows that perhaps another world is possible, that beyond this repression and violence, we can recreate something a lot more beautiful. And I do hope that that is the case as well. Well said, well said. Yeah, Yeah, well said. (laughs) Yeah, cheers. Well, thank you for having me on the show. Thank you so much. Oh, good, cheers. Thank you. See you later. All right, so that was um, Damun, um, yeah, um, who was just speaking about um, the revolt that's currently going on in uh, Iran. I think, you know, to we're kind of entering, as he kind of said, um, we're kind of entering this period where there's global revolts happening all over the world um, against neoliberalism, against capitalism, and that, you know, um, Green Left Radio is going to continue to stand in solidarity with all these kind of movements of the oppressed and continue to give coverage to them. Absolutely. And I think it's, uh, I don't think you can underestimate the importance of having solidarity with these uprisings all around the world. And as he said, um, you know, different countries showing solidarity with up- uprisings from other countries. Um, we, I mean, I, I cannot un- imagine what kind of situation they are in, but I imagine it would be very heartening to know that people around the world are with them and supporting them as they try to get, gain their freedoms. Yeah, that was really cool hearing about um, yeah people in different Arab countries like Lebanon and Iran having placards in support of one another's yes. struggles. Yeah, very heartening. All right. So we have five minutes left. Um, Zane, you wanted to play your song? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, just give that a... This is When Our Turn Comes with Climate Strike for everyone who's getting along to the climate strikes today. Climate the diamonds, new world order, the 
the main offender. Look, the main offender is you. Burying your little head in the sand. Garden CO2. Multinational scum just keep on running the profits. From machinery that's cooking the world and won't stop it. There's no time for people like you to come to your senses. Just step back and watch it. The revolution commences. Are we seriously going to wait until there's no more talk before we step on the brakes? We're leaving the way too late. And that's a fact. You've got to get out of the street and take us power back. Seriously gonna wait until there's no North Pole Before we step on the brakes We're leaving the way too late And that's a fact Gonna get down on the street and take the power back People of the future, listen to me We're gonna charge them with mass murder Can't you see? The dirty bastards knew exactly what they were doing They coughed a million warnings But they insisted on still polluting Hell, they were barking out orders from the top Like burn all the carbon reserves that we got more than happy to leave your planet trashed And for a brief moment they can make up under the cash Ask on a future that I'd like to contemplate And rather be part of a mass movement to break the state Emergency action decarbonize across the globe Nationalize the energy sector, yeah, lock and load Make all of the wind and the solar publicly owned Get it done right and keep prices under control The police and the battens and the media barons Get the barriers, we got to bulldoze to make it happen Seriously gonna wait until there's no North Pole Before we step on the brakes But even the way too late And that's a fact Gonna get out on the street and take the power back Seriously gonna wait until there's no North Pole Before we step on the brakes But even the way too late And that's a fact Gonna get out on the street and take the power back And you were listening uh, to Climate Strike by When Our Turn Comes, which is Zane, our, my co-host's band, which is an awesome song. Uh, we are about to wrap up the show, but we just want to do one more plug for supporting Green Left Weekly, the newspaper. You can go to greenleft.org.au. You can click on the Support Us button and you can become our supporter and help us get these voices that we've been talking to about uprisings all around the world out and about and get the people's interests out. So please stick around. Beyond Zero is going to be up next and they'll be talking about lots of different environmental issues. They're really cool and I can see them out the window. They're already waiting. Have a great weekend, everyone. Don't forget to attend the climate strikes today and, uh, yeah, rock on. It's on. See you next week. Yep. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Brought to you by the Green Left Weekly newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show... And interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. start sometime. What better place than here? What better time than now? Oh, hell, hell,
not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension? There will be a growing demand for industrial.